0: You're listening to KZOM, Oleander on Public Radio. Recording by Miriam Esther Goldman. A problem in communication, part one by Miles J. Brewer MD. Part one. The Science Community. The delivery of his country into the clutches of a merciless ultramodern religion can be prevented only by Dr. Hagstrom's deciphering an extraordinary code. This part is related by Peter Hagstrom, Ph.D. "'The ability to communicate ideas from one individual to another,' said a professor of sociology to his class, "'is the principal distinction between human beings and their brute forebears. The increase and refinement of this ability to communicate is an index of the degree of civilization of a people.' the more civilized the people the more perfect their ability to communicate especially under difficulties and in emergencies as usual the observation burst harmlessly over the heads of most of the students in the class who were preoccupied with more immediate things with the evening's movies and the weekend's dance but upon two young men in the class it made a powerful impression it crystallized within them certain vague conceptions and brought them to a conscious focus enabling the young men to turn formless dreams into concrete acts that is why i take the position that the above enthusiastic words of this sociology professor whose very name i have forgotten were the prime moving influence which many years later succeeded in saving occidental civilization from a catastrophe which would have been worse than death and destruction one of these young men was myself and the other was my lifelong friend and chum carl bender who saved his country by solving a tremendously difficult scientific puzzle in a simple way by sheer reasoning power and without apparatus the sociology professor struck a responsive chord in us for since our earliest years we had wigwagged to each other as boy scouts "'learned the finger alphabet of the deaf and dumb "'so that we might maintain communication during school hours, "'strung a telegraph wire between our two homes, "'admired Poe's Goldbug together, "'and devised boyish cipher codes "'in which to send each other postcards "'when chance separated us. "'But we had always felt a little foolish "'about what we considered our childish hobbies, "'until the professor's word suddenly roused us "'to the realization that we were "'a highly civilized pair of youngsters.' Not only did we then and there cease feeling guilty about our secret ciphers and our dots and dashes, but the determination was born within us to make of communication our life's work. It turned out that both of us actually did devote our lives to the cause of communication, but the passing years saw us engaged in widely and curiously divergent phases of the work. Thirty years later, I was professor of the Psychology of Language at Columbia University, And Benda was maintenance engineer of the Bell Telephone Company of New York City. And on his knowledge and skill depended the continuity and stability of that stupendously complex traffic, the telephone communication of Greater New York. Since our ambitious cravings were satisfied in our everyday work, and since now ordinarily available methods of communication sufficed our needs we no longer felt impelled to signal across the housetops with semaphores nor to devise ciphers that would defy solution but we still kept up our intimate friendship and our intense interest in our beloved subject we were just as close chums at the age of fifty as we had been at ten and just as thrilled at new advances in communication at television at the international language At the supposed signals from Mars? That was the state of affairs between us up to a year ago. At about that time, Benda resigned his position with the New York Bell Telephone Company to accept a place as the director of communication in the science community. This, for many reasons, was a most amazing piece of news to myself and to anyone who knew Benda. Of course, it was commonly known that Benda was being sought by universities and corporations. I know personally of several tempting offers he had received. But the New York Bell is a wealthy corporation and had thus far managed to hold Benda, both by the munificence of its salary and by the attractiveness of the work it offered him. That the science community would want Benda was easy to understand, but that it could outbid the New York Bell was, to say the least, a surprise. Furthermore, that a man like Benda would want to have anything at all to do with the science community, seemed strange enough in itself. He had the most practical common sense, well-balanced habits of thinking and living supported by an intellect so clear and so keen that I knew of none to excel it. What the science community was, no one knew exactly, but that there was something abnormal, fanatical about it, no one doubted. The science community— situated in virginia in the foothills of the blue ridge had first been heard of many years ago when it was already a going concern at the time of which i now speak the novelty had worn off and no one paid any more attention to it than they do to zion city or the dunkards by this time the science community was a city of a million inhabitants with a vast outlying area of farms and gardens it was modern to the highest degree in construction and operation There was very little manual labor there, no poverty, every person had all the benefits of modern developments in power, transportation, and communication, and of all other resources provided by scientific progress. So much visitors and reporters were able to say. The rumors that it was a vast socialistic organization without private property, with equal sharing of all privileges, were never confirmed. It is a curious observation that it was possible, in this country of ours, for a city to exist about which we knew so little. However, it seemed evident from the vast number and elaboration of public buildings, the perfection of community utilities, such as transportation, streets, lighting, and communication, from the absence of individual homes and the housing of people in huge dormitories, that some different, less individualistic type of social organization than ours was involved. It was obvious that, as an organization, the science community must also be wealthy. If any of its individual citizens were wealthy, no one knew it. I knew Benda as well as I knew myself, and if I was sure of anything in my life, it was that he was not the type of man to leave a $50,000 job and join a communist city on an equal footing with the clerks in the stores. As it happens, I was also intimately acquainted with John Edgewater Smith, recently power commissioner of New York City, and the most capable power engineer in North America, who, following Benda by two or three months, resigned his position and accepted what his letter termed the place of director of power in the science community. I was personally in a position to state that neither of these men could be lightly persuaded into such a step, and that neither of them would work for a small salary benda's first letter to me stated that he was at the science community on a visit he had heard of the place and while at washington on business had taken advantage of the opportunity to drive out and see it fascinated by the equipment he saw there he had decided to stay a few days and study it the next letter announced his acceptance of the position i would give a month's salary to get a look at those letters now but i neglected to preserve them I should like to see them because I am curious as to whether they exhibit the characteristics of the subsequent letters, some of which I now have. As I have stated, Benda and I had been on the most intimate terms for forty years. His letters had always been crisp and direct, and thoroughly familiar and confidential. I do not know just how many letters I received from him from the Science Community before I noted the difference, but I have one from the third month of his stay there-he wrote every two or three weeks characterized by a verbosity that sounded strange for him he seemed to be writing merely to cover the sheet trifles such as he had never previously considered worth writing letters about four pages of letter conveyed not a single idea yet benda was if anything a man of ideas there followed several months of letters like that a lot of words evasion of coming to the point about anything just conventional letters benda was the last man to write a conventional letter yet it was benda writing them gruff little expressions of his clear ways of looking at even the various trifles little allusion to our common past these things could neither have been written by anyone else nor written under compulsion from without something had changed benda i pondered on it a good deal and could think of no hypothesis to account for it In the meanwhile, New York City lost a third technical man to the science community. Donald Francisco, commissioner of the water supply, a sanitary engineer of international standing, accepted a position in the science community as water director. I did not know whether to laugh and compare it to the National Baseball League's trafficking in big names, or to hunt for some sinister danger sign in it. But, as a result of my ponderings, I decided to visit Benda at the science community. I wrote him to that effect and almost decided to change my mind about the visit because of the cold evasiveness of the reply i received from him my first impulse on reading his indifferent lackadaisical comment on my proposed visit was to feel offended and determined to let him alone and never see him again the average man would have done that but my long years of training in psychological interpretation told me that a character and a friendship built during forty years does not change in six months and that there must be some other explanation for this, I wrote him that I was coming. I found that the best way to reach the science community was to take a bus out from Washington. It involved a drive of about 50 miles northwest through a picturesque section of the country. The latter part of the drive took me past settlements that looked as though they might be in about the same age of progress as they had been during the American Revolution. The city of my destination was back in the hills, and very much isolated. During the last ten miles we met no traffic at all, and I was the only passenger left in the bus. Suddenly the vehicle stopped. "'Far as we go!' the driver shouted. I looked about in consternation. All around were low, wild-looking hills. The road went on ahead through a narrow pass. "'They'll pick you up in a little bit,' the driver said as he turned around and drove off, leaving me standing there with my bag, very much astonished at it all. He was right. A small, neat-looking bus drove through the pass and stopped for me. As I got in, the driver mechanically turned around and drove into the hills again. They took up my ticket on the other bus, I said to the driver. What do I owe you? Nothing, he said curtly. Fill that out. He handed me a card. An impertinent thing, that card was besides asking for my name address nationality vocation and position it requested that i state whom i was visiting in the science community the purpose of my visit the nature of my business how long i intended to stay did i have a place to stay arranged for and if so where and through whom it looked for all the world as though they had something to conceal Tsarist russia couldn't beat that for keeping track of people and prying into their business sign here the card said It annoyed me, but I filled it out, and by the time I was through, the bus was out of the hills, traveling up the valley of a small river. I am not familiar enough with northern Virginia to say which river it was. There was much machinery and few people in the broad fields. In the distance ahead was a mass of chimneys and the cupolas of ironworks, but no smoke. End of section one. Recording by Miriam Esther Goldman.